following message is presented by First Baptist Church of Morgan City, Louisiana. For more information, go to the website www.fbcmc.org. Now the message. I don't know if it was on video or not, but while I was singing moment by moment, I was being attacked by two or three mosquitoes, I believe. You know it's getting cold in Louisiana when the mosquitoes start trying to come inside to stay warm. I was not having an attack. I was not having a nervous breakdown or anything. <laughs> but uh, I was trying to take in that hymn, and I was thinking, I was reflecting about the hymns, the old hymns, what they meant, uh, what their worth was, what their value was. Man, I I don't ever want to get rid of them. That They have so much meaning to them. And the, originally the hymns that we've seen these days, they were originally written to teach theology, to help you remember it. That second hymn that we sang tonight, man, if you'll keep that tune going in your heart, you got Second Timothy one twelve memorized. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that. I mean, taken right out of the pages of Scripture. So uh, relish those hymns, but also remember that uh, contemporary has its place in, in music as well. Uh, I, I always laugh, David Crowder told a story. He took uh, I'll Fly Away and put it to a real contemporary beat. And uh, he said he had one young student come up to him after uh, a concert. He said, man, I like that song that you sang about flying away. Did you write that yourself? <laughs> he said, no. He said, that one's been around for 100 years or so. So, uh, man, I'm, just, I'm blessed uh, to hear those. I, I, I want to keep those going. I, I like the contemporary version of them as well. But they just they have such a deep, deep theological meaning, so many of them do, whether they're written verbatim from scripture or not, uh, each one of them has their, their proper place. And so there's so many, I mean, it is well with my soul, blessed assurance. You think of all those and just how much assurance that they bring into your life. When that song gets embedded in your mind, it's like I was talked about this morning. Uh, that thought gets in your mind, man, it just becomes a part of who you are. And so that, that second hymn that we sang is actually something that kind of goes along, uh, with my message tonight. We're talking about the guardian, uh, knowing whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed. This commitment between uh, God and Abraham is a recurring theme throughout the book of Galatians. And wh- what you're going to see Paul doing as he lays out the, the letter to the church of Galatia, he, he's establishing a solid root base right here in the beginning uh, then he starts focusing on a really strong trunk, if you want to think of it like a tree. And then when we get to Galatians 5, verses 22 through 26, with the familiar verse uh, where he talks about the fruits of the Spirit, he talks about the spiritual fruits that continue to grow if you've got that base, if you've got that foundation, if you've got that root uh, secure and dug deep into the God's Word. That's basically where he's going. Uh, as I think, thought about uh, this passage tonight, there's a couple of particular uh, metaphors that he uses. Uh, my mind started going back to uh, remote education. A lot of people today, I, I'm a part of the remote education system. That's a big debate as to whether remote education is just as valuable as on-site education. Uh, some of our students here, they'll be going to college soon. Some of them are already taking courses. Uh, you can do it all through the Internet. Uh, we used to go to school reading, writing, arithmetic uh, in the school classroom all the time. 
But now you can virtually get a degree in just about anything you want. Pretty much all of my seminary education, uh, other than a few workshops and conferences that I've been to, has been done remotely. Uh, technology has brought us to where we can learn from distances uh, at any education facility basically around the world. People on the other side of the planet can uh, tune in to classes at New Orleans Baptist Seminary uh, and get their seminary degree right there. I began thinking about uh, my education from a youth on up. Uh, I can remember the school mornings, cold mornings like we're going to have tomorrow morning, morning uh, Monday morning, uh, getting bundled up, mom and dad taking me to school. Uh, they would make sure that I got to school in the car pickup line, car drop off line. Uh, there I would spend all day. We'd eat lunch there. We'd make friends there. Uh, and then I got a little bit older, uh, up into high school. Uh, got my driver's license and then, then became my responsibility to get to school, uh, on time. Don't, don't skip school. <laughs> Don't make passes through town till you get a tardy slip or whatever. But it was then became my responsibility uh, to get to school and band practice and then home after that. And then it was my own responsibility to make sure that I got my homework and my assignments done. Uh, when I was in elementary and junior high, my parents would help me with some homework and make sure in the evenings I, I spent my time in the books and the lessons and studying the way that I should. They were basically my guardians and my helpers through those years, but... Uh, when high school came along, it then became my own responsibility. I was on my own. Uh, many times I failed miserably <laughs> at staying on track and staying focused with where I should be. Uh, my early high school years, I didn't do too well, but then I met my high school sweetheart, my uh, bride now, uh, and that kind of changed things drastically. I had a little bit different motivation to get my studies done, my homework done, and make those right grades so I didn't get my keys taken away from me. Uh, right now, as I'm going through seminary still, uh, I am totally responsible for furthering my education. Uh, I'm looking at classes further down the road. I'm lining things up. I'm getting online, registering for myself. I'm ordering books on my own. Everything basically I'm doing now is up to me to continue that process. I'm going somewhere with this. Don't worry. I'm not just telling stories up there. This has a lot to do with where we're going in tonight's message. In this message, Paul uses two metaphors, that of a mediator and that of a tutor. Uh, he's referring to the law, uh, what its place and time is. Last week we went through several rhetorical questions and he asked a couple of more rhetorical questions in this passage tonight. We're in Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 through 25. And so in the Greek and Roman culture, there was a role of a person, most of the influential families, the richer families that had kids would have someone known as a pedagogue. He was basically a tutor that would make sure that the younger children of that family, he was a paid servant, most of the time a male servant, and he had the general responsibility of supervising young pupils during their years of Education. Their responsibility was not necessarily to educate and instruct those students, but he was mainly like a bodyguard. He would make sure that they would get from the house to the school, to the synagogue, wherever they were learning at. Uh, his role wasn't to be the teacher, but simply to make sure that they were safe to and from school, 
And they were supervising the other work that pertained to their education. The Greek word is a pedagogue. And so as we think about that, this is Paul's metaphor here in Galatians 3 that describes the role of the law. He says the law is a tutor that led Israel to faith. And as I began thinking about that, I began thinking about the importance of the law, maybe in Jewish heritage, uh, how they would instill that in their children. Uh, every day they would get up and then recite the Shema. Oh, here, Israel, the Lord your God is one God. And you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. They would recite that each and every day, and it would be ingrained in their minds in their thought process. Now, begin to think about that. How How is that applicable to what the book of Proverbs says to train up a child in the way he should go, and he was old, he did not depart from it. We'll go back to the Old Testament book of Daniel. You read the story about Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. What happened to them? They were trained in Hebrew culture. They were taught by their parents. They might have had a pedagogue, I don't know, some type of tutor or a guardian to help them along through their educational years. But in their early years, all the way up in their teen years when they went to uh, Babylon as captives, they were taught the laws of God, the Ten Commandments, upholding them, living them, breathing them. They would hear them each and every day. It was instilled in who they were. It wasn't just a part of their life. It was a way of their life. As I thought about the years that they went as a teenager to Babylon, You remember what happened upon arriving to Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, what was the first thing he did? He assigned someone to them. His name was Ashpenaz. He was the master of the eunuchs, and he was responsible for teaching them the Babylonian culture. He would would teach them about uh, the language, the literature, and the culture of the Babylonians. But you remember what happened to Daniel and his three friends? They stood up for what the Lord meant to them. Their upbringing, their teaching, their learning of the law through their early years went with them even to a pagan land like Babylon. So Daniel and his three friends, they were firmly grounded to their Hebrew roots and their religion, the law basically. And it was from years of being taught through the law what they should and should not practice. And that teaching carried on into a time when they were away from their land, away from their synagogue, away from their parents. They were basically on their own. If you remember what happened to Daniel, Daniel said he purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's pleasures. So what Daniel taught, his teaching, his upbringing, his learning of the law helped him to love the Lord. Maybe the reciting the Shema, maybe that was something he continued to recite. I'm going to love the Lord God with all my heart all my soul, all my mind, and all the strength. And if you'll think about what the first commandment is, the very number one thing in the law, you shall have no other gods before me. So the law had its purpose. It really benefited Daniel and his three friends. We don't know if there were any others that made us stand like them, but we know the book of Daniel highlights them in their love for the Lord. And so the Apostle Paul is teaching there is a purpose for the law. There is a reason for the law, but that is not where we get our justification from. 
And he starts off in Galatians 3, verse 19, by asking this particular question. He says, what purpose then does the law serve? And so number one, point number one, we see this in verse 19. I'm going to get to it again in just a second. The law reveals the presence of transgressions. He asked the rhetorical question, what purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions. Till the seed, that is Jesus, should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. So he's saying here that the law reveals the presence of transgressions. It has no power to do anything about them, but it teaches us right from wrong. It establishes some principles and it gives us a baseline to go off of. So he uses two words. First word he uses in verse 19 is transgressions. And then in verse 22, uh, he uses the word sin. He says, but the scripture has confined all under sin. What seems to be the difference Paul is attempting to distinguish here between transgression and sin? I'm glad you asked. In the Greek, the transgression is the word parabasis, which is a breaking or a violation. Sin, as we discussed a couple of weeks ago, is the Greek word hamartia, which is a wrongdoing. It is a state of sinfulness. It is being evil. As we discussed a couple of weeks ago, it is an old archery term. It means we have missed the mark. We have fallen short. So one, the transgression is an act of doing, but the other one, sin, is a part of being. It is something that you have a nature. You are bent against the will of God because of the fall of man back in the book of Genesis of Adam and Eve. A transgression is just one simple breaking of the law. I've fallen short of one commandment. Sin covers them all. It says if you're guilty of one, you're guilty of all of them. So Paul is differentiating between sin and transgression. And Paul also makes the reference here to the need for a mediator. It's not the tutor that he's talking about in verse 24. But he refers here that even if there was, uh, because of the law, uh, transgression was added. But he said because of this transgression, uh, because of the promise that was broken, uh, it was appointed through angels by the hands of a mediator. He says, now a mediator does not mediate for one only. So he's distinguishing between transgression and sin. There's actually two mediators that he had in mind as he made this distinguish, um, this distinguishing. Moses was the mediator when it came to the law and the Jewish people. Moses became the middleman in this particular contract, this covenant, the Ten Commandments, the law that they were under. God told them to Moses. Moses taught them to the people. The people would report back to Moses. Moses would go talk to the Lord. So Moses became somewhat of a middleman between God and the Israelites during that time. And he was the mediator of the law. Moses became the middleman in this particular 
contract. And earlier in this chapter, the Apostle Paul referred to the covenant or the contract or the promise between Abraham and God. Now, this promise, this covenant between Abraham and God, there was no need of a mediator. There was no middleman. This was God speaking directly to Abraham, making a covenant. So there was no mediator involved. It was a promise that God made directly to Abraham. But here he's saying the law came into effect. The law pointed out our transgressions and the law became somewhat of a mediator between the Israelites and the Lord. So now in the New Testament age, Jesus has become our one and only needed mediator. Write down this verse, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. It says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Remember last week we talked about this 430-year span from Abraham to Moses till the law came into effect. Well, then from Moses and the law all the way up to Jesus Christ was another 1,500 years. But then when that when Jesus came into this earth, it wasn't that this law was abolished. That's not what Jesus said he came to do. We're going to get to that in just a minute. This mediator, there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Hebrews 8, 6 that we read just a moment ago. It says, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. So this word mediator in the Greek is basically a reconciler. It is someone there to cause agreement between two parties who are at friction with each other. It is to bring about a mutually accepted agreement between two parties to confirm, to interpose, or to guarantee this promise, this covenant between two people. So if there's a couple or if there's a group that has irreconcilable differences, they are in need of a mediator. They are in need of someone to help them reconcile those differences that they have between each other. But now Jesus becomes our mediator between us and God. We don't need the law. We don't need Moses. We don't need a middleman because Jesus became our great high priest and the one who is the mediator between us and God. He is the one that reconciled us to God because the book of Romans says that we in our sin are at enmity with God. We need someone to help us be reconciled to God once again. Let me just make this plain and clear. As a believer, as someone who has entered into a covenant with the Lord Jesus Christ, as someone who has committed their lives to them and promised them, you don't need another human being to be your mediator because you have the Lord Jesus Christ as your reconciler, as your mediator, as your go-between. I have Jesus. He already knows my burden. I don't need another human being. He is more than capable of handling all of my burdens. 
Why should I go to anyone else? Why would I even think that I need to go to anyone else? There's no one else here on this earth who can help me with my sin and my transgression. There's no one else who paid for my sin debt. There's no one else who can bear my burdens, and there's no one else who knows my heart like the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's no other person alive here on this earth, never has been, and there never will be anyone who is qualified to do for me what Jesus Christ has already done. I can go directly and I can go boldly to the throne of grace because of Jesus. That old song says, he is all I need. He is all I need. Jesus is all I need. When we are in a sinful state, we are at enmity with God. Romans chapter 8 verse 7 clearly says that. We are separated. We are enemies. We are in need of someone to reconcile us to God. The law only points out how far away from God we are on our own, but it has no way of bringing us back to God. The law reveals the presence of transgression in our lives, but it has no ability to reconcile us back to God once that transgression has been pointed out. D.L. Moody had this to say. He said, the law tells me how crooked I am, but grace comes along and straightens me out. Amen. The law is just there to show you what's wrong in your life. But Jesus came to help you correct what's wrong in your life. The next thing that we see is that the law provided the promise of a Savior. He says, all right, transgression is here. Transgression is present in your life. Something's wrong. You've broken the law and there's no way that you can be reconciled to God on your own. You need some help. Picking up in verse 21, he says, is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. Here's where we see the promise of a Savior. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. There's our word from this morning that believe comes into play. Where the law pointed out our transgressions, the Savior comes along and gives us the promise that those who believe would no longer be under the effect of sin and transgression. Because of the promise by faith in Jesus Christ. Go back to John chapter 117 that we were in this morning. John goes on to say that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Moses was a picture of Jesus. He was a picture of a good shepherd. He was a picture of someone who was a mediator. But he was only the one to bring the law. He was not the one to bring salvation. Jesus clarified all of his uh, works here on this earth. What he came to do, 
The Apostle Paul is clearly saying here, I'm not speaking against the law. He asked that rhetorical question. And he wants to clarify his role as apostle. He's defending his role as apostle. And the last thing that he wants is a black eye from the Judaizers. He doesn't want them spreading the rumor that Paul is preaching against the law. And he clarifies that by saying, is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. He said, that's not what I'm trying to say here. He says, there is a purpose for the law, but the law cannot save you from your sin and your transgression. And the last thing that Jesus wanted to do when he was here on this earth was to lead the religious believers to thinking that he was speaking out against the law. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 5. Here's the promise that Jesus gave, the promise of a Savior. Here's exactly what he said he came to do in relation to the law. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17, he says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Everything that Jesus said, he said, most assuredly it is written. If you've known the scriptures, you've known me. If you've known the Father, you've known me. But now he's saying, I didn't come to destroy the law or the prophets. I came to fulfill exactly what they said. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. That's the promises from Jesus. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying right there, just like Paul, the law has its purpose. It can help you if you will let it. But don't think that your justification and your salvation comes through upholding the law. He says, for this I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And according to Jesus reading through all the gospels, he didn't think very highly of the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. So he's saying your life, if you live it right, if you uphold the law, you can exceed what the scribes and Pharisees claim to be doing in their own lives. So that brings me back to something that I'm thinking about for next year's sermons. This brings me back to thinking about what would Jesus do? Would he uphold the law? Absolutely. Would he honor the law? Absolutely. Would he say that that's where salvation comes from? Absolutely not. But what would Jesus do? He said, you must uphold this righteousness. The voice of sin is loud, but the voice of forgiveness is even louder. Even the Savior said, the law can do something for you, but it can't do everything for you. It can show you where your sin is. It can show you where your your unrighteousness is. And it can help you to correct those things. It has its time and it has its place. He said, but I'm the Savior. And if you put all of your faith, hope, and trust in me, in what I've done on the cross of Calvary, that's where your hope and your faith rests completely. 
Not only did the law reveal the presence of transgression, not only did the law provide the promise of a Savior, but number three, the, the weakness of the law was substituted by the power of grace. Verse 23, but before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, for the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. The weakness of the law was substituted by the power of grace. Here's what the law said. The law said, shame on you. But here's what grace said. Grace said the shame is off of us <laughs> because Christ has removed all of our sin, all of our guilt, and all of our shame. That's the power of grace right there. What the law pointed out, the wickedness of our sin, the brokenness of our transgression, Grace said, "Uh uh-uh, not anymore. And when you step out in faith and you accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, a works-based salvation is no longer existent. It's all about grace. It's all about putting your hope and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The weakness of the law was substituted by the power of grace. When you transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament, this deal of living under the law or living under the grace, that's when that comes into play. Because what God says is he says, you know what, you made a mess of the law. You've made it so difficult for mankind to uphold or much less even remember all of these little sins, all of these little sacrifices, everything that you've got to do, all of these loopholes that are, you've added to the law, you've just made a mess of it. So here's what God said. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to fix it to where you know beyond the shadow of a doubt where your faith and your hope and your trust lie. That's where grace comes in. And if you've ever read through the Old Testament, you know all of these laws, all of these regulations, we have it in written word. They didn't have the written word back then like we do now. How were they supposed to keep up with all of those laws and all of those sacrifices? How confusing would that be? Have you ever attempted to read through the Bible from cover to cover and maybe get stuck in one particular book? What book was that? Leviticus? I've done it several times. I've started off, man, Genesis, good stuff in there, Deuteronomy. It's all good, but man, you get into the book of Leviticus with all those loopholes, all those sacrifices, five golden rings, four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. What am I supposed to do when I make this mistake? How confusing would that be? If you can't bring this sacrifice, well, here, here's a substitute for that sacrifice if you can't afford it. It's at this point when you're reading through the book of Leviticus with all of these laws and all these rules, all these regulations, all these sacrifices, that's when you really understand just how powerful grace is. 
And that's where you really learn how to appreciate the blood of Jesus Christ. Because everything in the book of Leviticus that you were supposed to do to cover your sins and your mistakes and your transgressions, one drop of the blood of Jesus Christ covers it all. It's at this point that you really understand the book of Leviticus. And it's at this point that your appreciation of grace really, really begins to grow. Not only did he provide the promise of a savior, but he also provided the power of grace. This whole concept of the tutor that is here, this pedagogue, in the book of Galatians, the, Paul, uh, the apostle Paul is laying out several metaphors, several rhetorical questions. He's making the church at Galatia think about what's going on. He's exercising their mind and their their thought process. And in the book of Galatians, the apostle Paul begins early on in the letter by establishing the roots of the tree like I described earlier. Early on in the book, he he makes three specific defenses in the first three chapters. First of all, he defends his identity as a true apostle. They were saying he's a fake, he's a phony, he didn't really see Jesus. That was the first part of the letter that he started defending his identity as a true apostle. The second specific defense that he makes, he contests uh, that what the Judaizers are proclaiming is not the true gospel. He says, I, as a true apostle, am bringing you the true apostle. But these other guys, what they're teaching, what they're preaching, upholding the law, the circumcision, everything that they're bringing to you, beware of that. That is a false gospel. That's the second defense that he makes. The third defense that he makes, he defends the accusations by the Judaizers that Christians' morals were lower because they did not adhere to the Jewish law. So the overall transition we see now is that he cultivates the roots by those three defenses. First three chapters, he spends time talking about the law, the purpose of the law, the defense of the law, the upholding of the law, where the place and time, uh, the mediator, the tutor, this teacher, just like the years that I spent with my parents, bringing me to school, helping me with homework, making sure that I stayed on task, this pedagogue role that was talking about. All those roots through all those years were cultivated, and then the trunk begins to grow up big and strong. And next we're going to see a transition going into chapters 4, 5, and 6. He begins now exhorting the church. Now that the root is firmly established, now that the trunk is growing strong and firm, he starts exhorting the church because he wants to see it begin to branch out and blossom and grow and produce spiritual fruit. Galatians 5, verses 22 through 26, probably one of the most commonly known passages in the book of Galatians. Not only does he talk about the fruits of the Spirit, but he begins off by talking about uh, the works of the flesh, and he makes a contrast there between the two of them. But what Paul is doing in this whole letter is he's moving in that direction of producing spiritual fruit there at the church of Galatia. 
The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, humility, and self-control. His overall goal is to clarify that what the law could not produce is now being produced only through the power of the Holy Spirit living within us as believers and living within them as believers as well. This all goes back to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I didn't get to preach that passage. Steve Sperling got to do that one. But this all goes back to what he said there in Galatians 2.20. It is no longer I, but Christ who lives within me. The law taught me some very important things, but now it is the spirit of the living God, Jesus Christ himself, in me, working out those things that the law could not produce. The law taught me how to be a better person. The law taught me to learn from my mistakes. The law pointed out the sin that was present in my life, but it's only the spirit of Jesus Christ living in me that'll produce the spiritual fruits that are gonna benefit everyone else around me. The law was a guardian. The law was a tutor. The law helped me up to a certain point, but then he says when faith came in, it was given to those who believe that the promise will be fulfilled through Jesus Christ to produce the fruits that only he can produce. This quote here by Ron Phillips kind of summarizes everything we talked about. While we do not live under the law of Moses insofar as a sacrificial system as a means of our salvation or right standing with God, we do observe the law as a divine standard. The law points out our shortcomings and our need for a Savior. And I'd like to add to that that the law helps us to appreciate more and more the grace that only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9, Paul writes, By grace you are saved through faith, and it's not that of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works should any man boast. The law points out just how crooked we are, and then grace straightens us up and helps us to go in the direction that we're supposed to be going in. Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight. And God, we just thank you so much that we can rest comfortably in the grace that comes through your shed blood, through that one-time sacrifice. God, I'm so glad that I don't have to get up every morning and wonder what I'm going to have to sacrifice today to cover my mistakes. Because you came as the Lamb of God, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, that one-time sacrifice for all of mankind. Your precious blood was shed to wash away all of our sins. Lord, we want to honor your laws. We want to relish your laws. We want to see that these laws are good for establishing a baseline for us in our lives. Love the Lord God with all your heart, 
all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. It not only teaches us how to love you more, but it also teaches us how to love other people as well. To love them like you would love them. To treat them like you would treat them. So I pray, Lord God, that our conduct would reflect that. Our morals would be up to that standard. And that above all else, the outside world would see us giving honor and glory to you by living our lives in a way that is pleasing to you. I thank you that you are our mediator. You are the only one who can bear our burdens. You are the only one that can answer our questions. And you are the only one that we can go to and go through to have access to our Heavenly Father. And now, Lord, we want to be just like Jesus. God, we want to think constantly, what would Jesus do in any particular situation, in any circumstance? And we just thank you in advance, Lord God, for what you're going to do. Lord, I thank you for the great service that we had this morning. I'm looking forward to the next two Sundays, Lord God, as we continue to celebrate your birthday. The time that you came to this earth to reveal to us the true nature of God. And we just pray that as we continue moving through that study on Sunday mornings, Lord God, that hearts would turn towards you. Our minds would really comprehend why you came to this earth. And we just thank you for what you've done and what you're going to do. And we just ask it all in your most precious and holy name we pray. Amen. The preceding message was presented by First Baptist Church in Morgan City, Louisiana. For more information about a relationship with Jesus Christ or about First Baptist Church, including contact info, go to the website www.fbcmc.org. Thank you for listening, and may God bless you.